Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Now, despite being in an environmental and biodiversity crisis, there are a number of animals that have come to the brink of extinction and yet somehow defied it. So what can we learn from them? And are we being optimistic by thinking we can bring more species back? Joining me now is Dr. Christopher Preston. He's the author of Tenacious Beasts, Wildlife Recoveries That Change How We Think About Animals. He's also an environmental philosophy professor at the University of Montana. Welcome to the program, Chris. Um, you know, we're constantly talking about the the, the ever-present threat and, and not to take away from it uh, to talk about success stories or in any way lighten it. But this is, um, this is a really interesting book because it, it, it shows that there are some species, uh, either through huge involvement of humans or through just letting them alone, there are some species that are coming back out of uh, the brink of extinction. Is that what really interested you, the, the, these sort of outliers of the extinction crisis? Yes, absolutely. I mean, when COVID happened and we all got locked in our homes, we noticed these animals coming back. And I thought, hmm, there's something going on here. So I wanted to look at the good cases. And, you know, there's not many of them. I don't want to over-exaggerate it. But I wanted to look at the good cases and see what there was to learn. The, the entire world is a very big place. And, of course, there are lots and lots of species there. When we talk about extinctions, um, we're presumably talking about like big animals, you know, from uh, snakes, the size of snakes or mice or rodents, that that size up, right? We don't talk about the extinction of animals much smaller than those because they're much harder to measure. Is that right? What sort of animals were you looking at? Well, extinctions are happening across the board uh, from insects you know, all the way up to um, rhinoceroses. But uh, I, I tended to get drawn to the more charismatic, bigger ones. Those are the ones that are in the news, Uh those are the ones that I happen to have run into. I mean, a lot of this book came together because I'd met a few of these species in the course of my work and my travels, and I thought, I need to find out a bit more about what's going so right in these cases. Hmm. So um, let's start with humpback whales then, and we'll get through a few to kind of illustrate what you're talking about. Humpback whales were, they did come very close. They were reduced about 95% in population. Uh, and in the 1960s, a ban on harvesting them was put in place. And they immediately started coming back. And, you know, there's a sort of very basic but very subtle point here. If you want an animal to come back, step one is stop killing it. Um, And so here we are today, and the North Atlantic population of humpback whales has climbed back from about 1,000, which was the low point, and they're now at 35,000. It's the same in the Pacific coast of North America. There's a population of about 25,000 now. This is a very exciting and spectacular recovery. And with the recovery comes all these ecosystem effects. And what is the life cycle of a humpback whale? How long do they live? Because I'm surprised that you managed to go from, you know, 1,000 to 35,000 so quickly. So average age for a humpback whale is around 40 to 50 years, but they can live up to 80 or 90. Bowhead whales, which is another type of filter feeder baleen whale, they can live over 200 years. So it's kind of remarkable uh, the, the generations that can come back and the, the wisdom, the ancient wisdom that builds up in, a, in an animal that lives that long. Uh, so with, with regards to humpback whales, what exactly what was, was it simply just not, not hunting them anymore? That, that was the only thing that was needed to release the, the, the pressure on the species? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the striking thing about humpback whales. And I also track sea otters in the Pacific. It's the same thing, part of their basic biological drive. So in a number of cases, if you stop killing them, they start coming back. In other cases, you've got to work at it pretty hard. You might have to do some captive breeding. You might have to gently release them back into an environment, maybe supplementary feeding for a while. 
But across this range of animals, you can go from do nothing but stop killing them uh, to get heavily involved and then they'll come back. One of the examples on the other extreme is the spotted owl, um, which required a, a huge amount of intervention to to bring it back to start flourishing again. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, so to be honest, with the northern spotted owl, uh, we're not sure yet if it's going to make it back. Oh, really? But it is, I would say, a tenacious, a tenacious beast. It's trying to hang on there. Um, the problem it's facing is it's got a related owl species, the barred owl, which was not previously in its Pacific Northwest location. And now that the barred owl is there, it is out-competing the spotted owl. And the only way the spotted owl is going to have a chance is if you suppress the barred owl population. And so there's a bunch of experiments going on to see how that can be done. I went out on the forest with somebody who spent the last five years shooting barred owls in order to give the spotted owl a chance. Now, um, is that the right approach? I mean, spotted owls surely weren't hunted by humans. Um, what was the cause for their demise? Well, they struggled because of the way the forests were being treated in the right. Northwest. They nest in old growth and old growth snags. And as that old growth diminished, those spotted owls started to struggle. And so there were changes in policy in the United States in the 1990s that slightly improved their odds by keeping some of that old growth intact. And then this second problem arose. And so, you know, you just have to make a big decision here. Are you going to let them go extinct or are you going to try and do something about it? What about the buffalo then? Because I, I thought buffalo were in rude health. Certainly, um, I saw many of them in, in uh, the Yellow, Yellowstone when I was there. Um, so it's presumably buffalo in certain areas are, are particularly um, under threat or, or particularly spe- a particular species of buffalo. Well, the, the plains bison, they have come back from the brink of extinction. At the low point about a century ago, they were down to about 500 animals. They're now up to 500,000. But an interesting wrinkle in this success story is that almost all, if not every one of those 500,000 bison, they have cattle genes in them. Uh, And this is the result of some crossbreeding that took place about 70 or 80 years ago. And in some sense, the the purity of the original bison species has been lost. And that's causing a lot of environmentalists to kind of wring their hands and say, well, do we have the right animal back here? Or is this now what we're... um, forced to deal with. This is now the, the new type of bison. It's a bison with some cattle genes in it. But yeah, 500,000 is pretty good. They've come back pretty well. And uh, with Native American reservations accepting more and more bison these days, uh, their prospects look pretty good. The, the story of the, the bison is an extraordinary one because it was an absolute massacre. As you say, about 100 years ago, it reached its, its, its um, absolute um, nadir. And they were literally hunted and hunted and hunted until they piled um, high uh, across the horizon in the States. They just killed and killed until there were very few left. Well, that's true. It was an absolutely brutal Slaughter, and of course, because that there was there was of... money on their on their heads, right? They were you were paid for every buffalo you killed at the time because they were considered to be a problem. Well, and also the the coats were worth something, uh, and so there was a market incentive to harvest these bison. Plus, they kind of got in the way of ranching activities. You know, the idea mm. was if you wanted to have cattle on the landscape, you couldn't have bison. So it was an extraordinary slaughter, down from maybe sixty million animals to about 500. But, you know, they hung on, they did well, and they're starting to come back, and that's something to celebrate. There aren't a lot of European bears, but there are some still uh, in uh, in existence, some in habitats in uh, Germany and Switzerland, and some um, in Italy. 
Tell me, tell me a little bit about this um, Italian bear, the Marsican bear. How many individuals are left and, uh, and what is the prospect for it? Yeah, so actually in brown bears in Europe in general, there's a little bit more than you think, actually. They're oh, really? The, the over 10,000, yeah. Um, the Marsican bear is a particular subspecies of brown bear uh, that lives in the Apennines of Italy. You can actually see a Marsican bear just an hour and a half from Rome in the hills there. But this is an extraordinarily imperiled brown bear. For about a century, there's been no more than 50 of them there. But they've been hanging on, which is remarkable in itself, that with only 50 individuals, you can hang on. And there are some exceptional conservationists at work trying to smooth the return of these bears. And the numbers of Marsican bears are creeping up. Uh, They're now maybe around 70 or so. There's going to be an official count next summer, and hopefully the news will reveal they're doing even better than that. And so this is a case where an animal has really teetered on the edge for almost a century. And through careful work in conservation and public outreach, making people uh, aware that there's such a rare animal in their presence, these bears are just starting to show signs of coming back, which is pretty exciting. Where, where are the 10,000 bears in Europe? Um, they're across the Caucasus Mountains. There's a few in the Alps. Um, a bear showed up in Germany not so long ago. And uh, you know, there's bears in Finland. Um, there's bears in Sweden. There's yeah, more right. than you think. But I forgot about I forgot about the northern countries. I was thinking about um, Central Europe. So um, that's the the bear. Uh, when we think about um, these sort of animals, there was discussion about perhaps reintroducing the wolf um, to Ireland. Um, there is, I suppose, a conversation that's always being had with farmers or people who live on the land about the concerns about bringing back or protecting species that are predators. Is that a conversation that you had a lot of? Um, I presume the conservationists don't really care. Yeah, so this is an interesting issue that I try to tackle in the book. You know, when an animal comes back after 100 years, um, yes, it's getting a second chance biologically and ecologically. But I suggest, you know, maybe we can also give it a second chance socially and culturally. So maybe we can try and figure out different ways of cohabiting. And, and, you know, let's be honest, we have... uh, better techniques now. We have better knowledge of the behaviors of the animals. I think we have a better set of tools. And so the wolf is an interesting case. It's come back to every country in continental Europe without being reintroduced. It's just found its way back onto landscapes that are heavily populated with people. And they're finding a way to make it work. Now, I'm not saying that all of the tensions and all of the problems have gone away. There's still issues to tackle and there's still money that needs to be fairly distributed so that nobody is unfairly harmed by the return of an animal like a wolf. But continental Europe is kind of showing us something about how close to people wolves can live. And and I would argue this is like a different conception of animals. It's one that's more generous to animals. Uh, and it's one that a lot of people find quite exciting and, and it's something that they want in their future. No, I, and they're not. I mean, they, they hate humans. They like to stay very far away from us. I remember... Again, you know, uh, outspotting uh, wolves in the wild and they really don't like to be anywhere near us. So those sort of interactions between humans and wolves are quite are, are quite rare. Um, what about the um, bottleneck for the, some of these species? Because some species could survive going down to just a few few pairs, right? But there are, are presumably different numbers for different types of species where after a certain amount, it's very difficult to imagine maybe because of how far they roam, their habitat, their mating, their, how long they live, that it's very hard to imagine them coming back. Does that vary a lot across the species you looked at? 
Yeah, so that's actually a very interesting question. You know, when you go down to very low numbers, you get a genetic bottleneck. And generally speaking, when you lose genetic diversity, that's a pretty bad thing mm. for a species. However, uh, it turns out that it's not always quite as bad as you might expect. So European bison, the whole of the population of bison in Europe at the moment, which is about 7,500, they were restored from 12 individuals. So that's a pretty wow. severe bottleneck. But what is happening or what's being found is that a lot of the harmful genetics had already been removed during that bottleneck. So, you know, when you got down so low, uh, the genes that were bad for the species, they were gone already. Yeah. Uh, the, so the, that, only that the strong survived, the return, literally. Yeah. Yeah. So the return has turned out to be not quite as problematic uh, as was thought. And the same thing is happening uh, in North America. Uh, the same thing is happening with California condors, which were down to 23 individuals. Uh, and so in some cases, and the genetics here is way above my pay grade, um, the genetics here is not quite as bad news for these species that teeter on the edge as perhaps you might expect it in some cases. Of all the species you um, you looked at, what was the uh, most in peril, and 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 what were what sort of efforts are put behind it to save it? Because obviously, depending on the culture, um, the, the the wealth of the nation, um, uh, and the I suppose symbolism of the animal, the the panda in China was just you know it was such a major priority because it was such a symbol of that country. Was there one that really um, was very close to the edge and required a huge amount of help? Well, there's several that are very close to the edge. And, you know, we've mentioned uh, the mask and bear and the northern spotted owl already. Um, but the various species of Pacific salmon, I think, are interesting. Uh, I mean, we have done devastating things to the habitat of Pacific salmon. And the, perhaps the most devastating thing you can do is to put a dam up in its way because it wants to move from the ocean uh, into the headwaters to spawn. And it simply can't do that if it bumps up against a giant uh, concrete impediment to its passage. Um, Fortunately, what's happening in North America and across Europe is that a lot of dams are coming up to for a sort of review and they have to be relicensed and they're looking at them and saying, well, look, how much repairs do we have to do to make this work for another 40 years? Uh, it's very expensive. In some situations, the original purpose of the dam is no longer uh, needed. And so the dam can come out. Now, that's wow. an enormous investment. Yeah. You know, a lot of money, a lot of effort, you know, quite a bit of uh, sort of change of, of behaviors um, for people in some cases. Um, but as a result, fish deliver handsomely. I mean, fish can reproduce dramatically and you can get these incredible restorations of fish when dams come out. And this has happened on a number of rivers on the uh, west and east coast of the United States. Uh, and literally, it's one of those cases where you know, if, if you do it, they will come. If you get that dam out, these fish will uh, come back almost immediately. And so those are some really exciting cases of tenacious beasts. Well, the book is called Tenacious Beasts, uh, Wildlife Recoveries That Change How We Think About Animals. Uh, it's by Dr. Christopher Preston and, and details uh, a, a, a dozen or so of these animals and uh, their, their plights. Really interesting stories. Thank you very much for joining us, Christopher. Yes, yeah, my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me on. Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.